The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. If you're able, uh, just please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We'll be reading from John 14, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Christ is speaking. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thanks, Jeremy. You guys can have a seat. I encourage you to turn to John 14. As I've been approaching these sermons, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that these sermons in this text is a runway for a departure. And it's a, it's a departure that the people in the room are trying to avoid. It's a departure that no one saw coming, and it's a departure that no one likes. It's a departure that no one quite understands why the earthly side of things as it is. The, the disciples are sitting around the room hearing Jesus' words. Again, this is a meal that we've been looking at. This is one sitting. Now, next week, we're going to start to move in this story. The upper room discourse kind of uh, uh, takes some legs, and they start to walk towards the garden. But as these disciples are sitting and hearing all that Jesus is saying, that I go to prepare a place for you, that I'm leaving you, that let not your hearts be troubled, all of these realities, what they're thinking is that they are concerned about the words that Jesus is saying. They've wondered, is God still in control? Jesus isn't supposed to go away. Maybe they're even thinking, there must be a better way. I don't think this is how the end of Jesus' story needs to end. Can we press pause on this for a minute and consider another option? I start there because it's so important for us as we approach 
this text, and really any text, but especially this text, for us to feel the angst and the brokenness in the room. For us not only to understand, comprehend intellectually, but understand in our souls. This is what the disciples are going through because it's at that level that we're going to be able to receive the gift that Christ is proclaiming to us today, the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think about, again, we're thinking about the feeling of it all, the, what, what James and John and Peter and the rest of the disciples are going through. Think about the vulnerability and fear that's immediately on their minds. Jesus, you're leaving me? They're startled by this departure. There's got to be a different way. Imagine if Jesus started to have this conversation in this level of detail weeks ahead of time. Imagine the sidebar conversations that would take place. Maybe we can figure out another way for Jesus that he doesn't have to go and die. Just consider the scheming that would be among the 12. I, I, I think maybe we can find some other option. I mean, this type of intervention is actually something that we've seen um, before this now. In Matthew 16, we see that Jesus began to speak about his death. This is Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. And Peter hearing this going, that can't be the way, God. Jesus, that seems like a ridiculous plan. Peter comes next to him, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. I love the Christian language here. Far, far be it from you, Lord. You should, you, this shall never happen to you. This can't be the way. This can't be the plan. That can't be God's divine plan of redemption and action for you to go and be killed. And what did Jesus say? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you have a hindrance. You, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That line, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, is really what Jesus is, is protecting the disciples from in this moment in the upper room. They're hearing, I'm about to depart from you. I'm about to go. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to leave you. In their mind, on the physical side of things, they're saying that has to be the wrong idea. That's the wrong plan. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I need you to trust in me. I need you to look to me. I need you to let me set the plan in action, not you set the plan in action. You see, Jesus knew that it was the perfect and the right way for him to leave which is where we're at in this upper room discourse in John 14. But he leaves his disciples and he leaves us with a promise. It's a very simple promise, but it's a promise that carries us through the most difficult aspects of life. And this is the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm quoting Hebrews 13, and Hebrews 13 is quoting Joshua, but that's ultimately what's happening here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what we're going to see this morning through the rest of John 14. I'll just show my cards at the very beginning. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's see where he starts this. Verse 18, he, he, he heard that, you know, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. This is also after we heard that Jesus is going to go and prepare a place for them. and says, okay, I'm going to send you this other helper, and this is going to be the spirit of truth, and this is, the, the world can't receive this, only you can receive this. And he turns to them, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Why? Because I live, because I live, so you will also live. And in that day, you will know that 
I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Imagine if Jesus heard the cries, don't leave. And he, and he went, okay, you're right. That's going to be really difficult. I should stay, you're right. Okay, Peter, I won't, I won't leave. I won't go to, to a Jerusalem. I will live my life with you. Imagine that. The entire plan of redemption would be put on pause or would be null and void. Everything's leading up to this point. But Jesus knows something that we can struggle to believe. Jesus knows there's actually two things. Jesus knows that separation does not equal rejection and that outward confusion does not mean that God has lost control. When the disciples are crying out and you know, thinking in their minds and maybe even verbalizing, Lord, there has to be another way. What they're thinking is if you leave me, you're gonna reject me. And what they're saying is this outward confusion cannot actually equal the fact that God is still in control. And yet everything that we're gonna see in this passage is that those two realities don't stand with God's plan. That separation does not equal rejection and outward confusion does not mean that God has lost control. In fact, the outward confusion means that God is perfectly in control in those moments. And the first way that we can see that God is in control is that he is a homemaker. Last week or a couple weeks ago, we talked about, and I've even referenced it a couple of times already, that he's going to prepare a place for you. And that's thinking of heaven. In that way, God is a homemaker. He is creating this space for us where we will be with him for eternity in heaven. But notice that we go, but that homemaker is leaving us. Notice that Jesus says, I'm going to send you another homemaker. Now, I know this, this word homemaker, probably, if you're like me, when you hear the word homemaker, I think of a, a mom that stays home, like the stay-at-home mom, and you, if you have to fill out some applications, like, what's your job? You're not going to say stay-at-home mom. No, you're going to say homemaker, because that actually is an occupation, because what does a homemaker do? It brings, uh, what's, what's the word? I'm using, sorry. It brings order to chaos, right? That's what moms do. They bring order to chaos. And if you doubt that, just wait for the mom to go on some weekend trip with her friends and what is there? Chaos. Because without mom, nothing goes well. She brings order to chaos in the place. She, she takes it home and she provides care and order and structure and love that is so desperately needed. And without that homemaker, there is chaos. Well, the disciples are going, chaos is in front of us because Jesus, you're about to leave. But what he says is, no, I'm giving you a homemaker. I'm giving you somebody to bring order to chaos. The way he words it, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You see, at this time, orphans were something that the disciples and first century Judaism knew well. Orphans are actually a common talking point throughout scripture. It's one of those Words that we see from the very beginning. We can see in Exodus 22, the, the, in, in, in God's commands, it says we're commanded not to abuse widows and orphans. We can see in the book of Ruth, even the way that Israel lived their life and ordered their life, that widows and orphans were able to glean from the sides of the field when the harvesters came in and picked. We can see from the book of James in the New Testament that says this in James 1:27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what does that show us when you look from Exodus all the way to James is that God has always shown grace to the weak and to the destitute. And when the disciple heard orphan, that's what they thought of, weak and destitute. At this time period, it was a death sentence 
for all intents and purposes, to be an orphan. Because it was a dog-eat-dog a dog world. It was a tough world. There was no civil structure to care for the orphans. You were cast aside if your family was not able to care for you. So imagine you watching your parents as a young child and they die. In your mind, you're like, I don't have a hope without my parent here. There was little mercy given to them because resources were so difficult to accrue in life that giving them away to somebody else that didn't deserve it or wasn't your family or somebody that didn't bear your name was a hard pill to swallow. In fact, the early church, as it relates to orphans, the early church made a name for itself, made headways in the Roman Empire because they specifically cared for the widows and the orphans. People were like, wait a second, why are you caring for them? You shouldn't have to care for them. They're not worth your care. And yet the early church understanding that everyone has the Imago days going, no, I'm going to care for them and love them. So when Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he's speaking to their need. He's speaking to their heart. He's speaking to that vulnerability and fear that they have in this moment. Jesus, if you leave us, we're going to die. It's over. If you go away, I have no hope. And what he offers is that homeowner who's bringing order to the chaos. He's offering somebody to come in and, and offer new life. So this wording here, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you, is a language of hope. Sure hope, like Hebrews hope. Grasp onto hope. I am not going to leave you destitute and needy. I'm going to care for you. Now you could ask the question, how are they going to know that? How are they going to know that Jesus is going to return to them? How are they going to know that Jesus has the power to come back even from the grave? How are they going to know that they have that help about them when they can't physically see Jesus? Because this is the thing about the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we walked around, physical body and life. We got to see his miracles. We got to, to the uh, disciples got to touch him and talk with him and ask him questions and interact on, in, in, in just normal physical sphere. How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? The answer comes in verse 20. In that day, what day are they talking about? In his resurrection day. You could say in three days. In three days, guys, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And in that day, you will know that you will live. And in that day, you can know that you are not an orphan, but you are loved and cared for me. Imagine that. When, again, they're sitting again in another room because Jesus had died. And it says they've gathered together, and I'm sure they've gathered together, and they've asked the question, what just happened? We followed this guy for three and a half years. He said that he had the words of life. He said he was the bread of life. He said he was the, the Lamb of God. He said he was God. He just died. What just happened? And then he comes back. And he stands in front of them. And I think in that moment they went, oh yeah. Now I truly believe you because I see once again that you have the power over death and life. So again, this is this comfort of I will never leave you nor forsake you. But as we continue, just we have to move on for the sake of time, gets to 21. And in one sense, Jesus returns 
to the same language that he used in verse 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and, I, and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, the question that every reasonable person's asking, how, Lord? How? How is it, and this is a very reasonable question, how are you going to manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Are you going to hide yourself from the world? Are you going to put on a cloak? How is it that we're going to see you, but not the world see, sees you? How is it that, that we are going to understand that you are the Messiah and that you've risen from the grave and, and that we can trust in you, but the world is not going, how, Lord? Well, Jesus, in his stereotypical Jesus fashion, because he's perfect in this way, doesn't really answer the question. We're just kind of used to that now in the book of John. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not, love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father who sent me these things i have spoken to you while i am still with you jesus as i said returns to the same language that we started in verse 15 of if you love me you will keep my commandments but i think this is what's at the heart of it i think what the, this is what is, is being explained in the section of verses 21 through 25 that our love for god and even our faith in God is evidenced by us keeping his word. The difficulty in keeping God's word in this life is that it makes us vulnerable in this life. And it makes us vulnerable because living by the standards of God's kingdom puts us at odds with the standards of man's kingdom. The world has created these really well-worn paths of success. This is what you need to do to be good. This is what you need to do to have security. This is what you need to do to have peace. This is what you need to do to have hope. But God's way is not man's way, which is why we have this conflict in the beginning. We started with the prologue. Light came into the world, and the darkness did not like the light. So what did it do? It tried to shove out the light because the light exposed the deeds of the darkness the kingdom of god has always been and will always be con contrary and counter to man's kingdom and so if we're going to follow god's law and if we're going to follow god's word if we're going to follow god's commands you know what that means we're going to stick out we're not going to blend in we're going to demonstrate how we're different do you want to know what this world does to people that look different? They pick up their proverbial hammer and try to nail them back down into place. Persecution happens because the darkness does not like the light. But the question then is, how can we demonstrate our love to God that he is calling us to because of his spirit? Well, the answer comes by living like we trust him. By living like we know that he's with us. By living like he's, like the, the disciples lived, like Jesus next to them. We talked about, I think it was last week or the week before, where when, when the disciples heard that Jesus was leaving, it was so shocking to them because there was so much confidence built up in their own soul of just over three and a half years of walking with them that, listen, wherever Jesus is, that's the safest place for me to be. So the disciples went to places they didn't want to go and were in these really vulnerable situations 
man, by, by, by man's standards, but they knew where God is, that's the safest place where I'm going to stick with him. Well, now Jesus isn't physically with us, but we now have the spirit. And what he is saying is, listen, if you trust me, that the helper that I give to you is just as powerful, just as important, just as, 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 as divine as Jesus and earthly flesh is here, then you are able to live in this, wor- in this world like you trust me. So what's that look like? Well, we trust him that his law is best. So when this world says it has to be one way and it's contrary to God's word, we're going to say God's word is best. We trust him that he is going to do what he said he's going to do. So many moments in our life, we have these, 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 these questions of like, what is going on, Lord? It does not seem like the world is acting like it should. Are you still in control? Again, this is where we started with, with these disciples. God, I don't, there's confusion here. Does that mean that you've lost control? Well, if we trust him and say he's actually sitting on the throne, he's actually still in control, we're gonna trust him and say, we don't know how this is gonna turn out, but we know that it will turn out for your good and your glory. And we trust him by considering by demonstrating and living out true religion, by caring for widows and orphans, by not having this hoarding lifestyle of we need, but having this lifestyle that we're willing to give. Simply we trust him by obeying him, even when we don't see how it's going to work out. That's the hard part. That's why Jesus knew that we needed a helper. Because he knew immediately, within hours, the disciples are going to be standing at the foot of the cross and saying, how does this work out? That's not the plan. God, can we, we should have some sidebar conversations. That doesn't work. And yet trusting and going, but I'm going to trust God that he knows what he's doing and that he's still in control. That is so hard. Which is why Jesus takes us to the next two verses. He returns to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because you hear that and you say, but that is difficult to live like light in a dark world. And Jesus immediately returns to the gift of the Spirit. Look at verses 26 and 27, and we're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you with, my peace I give you. Not as this world gives you, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. These verses offer great clarity in several aspects of the Holy Spirit. First, in his role and then in, in his power, and last, in his position. And we're actually going to focus in on each three of those aspects of who the Holy Spirit is. We're going to flip them. We're going to start by looking at position, and we're going to end by looking at role. Look at his position. His position is from the Father, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. One of my favorite hymns is not one that is sung or that we sing it, but one that the early church sung. And it's Philippians 2. And it is a hymn about Christ. 
when Paul wrote that in Philippians 2, it's believed to be a hymn that he, 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 he put in there. And, and, and the language in Philippians 2 is so helpful because we just see the glory and the humility and the majesty of Christ. How does Philippians 2, that hymn, start? Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus' position gave him the authority that he has, which is why when we look at Jesus, we say that he's truly God and truly man. He came from God, but he did not account that uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself what by taking on the form of man. What do we see here though about the Holy Spirit? We see that the Holy Spirit has the exact same position as Christ. He's from the Father. God looked at us and said, I am going to give you somebody who is going to indwell you forever. That is directly from me. So you are going to have this connection with God in a way that we never had it before because Jesus was with us, but now the Holy Spirit is going to be, as we looked at last week, not only with us, but in us. And that person who is in us is directly from God. So we have another advocate with the Father now. Not only the mediator who's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, Christ, but we have the Holy Spirit that is inside of us. So we're going to look at what his role is in a minute. But the reason I emphasize this is because any gift that we receive is not only special because of what the gift is, but it's special because of who gave us the gift. And what we just saw is that this Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift because we don't deserve it. It's from the Father, but it's from the Father. When I was 12, my family, or I should say, growing up, my grandparents were in western New York, and I would always go up every summer and spend some time, and then every Christmas and, and spend some time. That's what I did for the majority of my childhood. And every summer, my um, grandparents on both sides of the family, they were pretty close, would always draw names for Christmas forget what that name is, but we, we would draw names, and so instead of buying like 37 Christmas gifts, I now understand the, the, the blessing of this as a parent, we would buy one per person, and so we would do the, the uh, gift exchange. When I was 12, we went up in the summertime and went to my dad's side of the family, and we drew names, and I drew my grandfather's name. Well, my grandfather at that time was pretty sick. He had cancer, and we didn't exactly know how bad the cancer was at that time, but from drawing that name at Christmas time to November, he passed away. And that's obviously a difficult thing. And so we spent a lot of time up there that year. Well, it came Christmas time. We were heading back up north. We were going to go do Christmas. It's obviously going to be a sad moment because my grandfather wasn't there. And as the 12-year-old, I got to preface this, I did begin to think, but he drew my name. Am I going to have a gift under the tree? It's 12, okay? Just keep that in place, 12. I thought this. I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, why am I asking for a gift when my grandfather just passed away? That's really sad. Well, it came the day for us to celebrate Christmas with that side of the family, and my dad got me up and said, hey, Ryan, we got to run some errands before we go over there, hop in, hop in the truck, and we're going to go drive. And we started driving. It was like an hour and a half. It was a long drive. And I was like, where are we going? And they pull into this um, horse farm pull up to the barn. I was like, well, this is interesting. I, I liked horses at the time. I, I wanted a horse at the time. I kind of said that. I was like, well, this is interesting. We get to go see a horse. I was totally oblivious at this point. And then my grandmother walks out from behind the door and was like, 
well, what's she doing here? And she goes, here, Ryan, here's your Christmas gift that your grandfather picked out for you before he died. It's a horse. And I was like, I mean, that's a horse. Like, how do you top that? It's a horse. But the thing that chokes me up now, thinking about that, isn't the horse. It's the fact that my grandfather said, here, Ryan, you're my gift. That's what's here from the, this position of the Holy Spirit. Your heavenly father looked at you when you came to Christ and said, here, you need this. This gift is for you. This spirit is for you. And I know it's a, it, you know, everyone gets that, but it's for you. And so don't let that gift just gloss you by like, oh, everyone has. No, it's for you inside of you, specifically for you. So what does this gift offer? That gets to the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is to renew our minds in the declaration of Christ. It says this in 16, He will teach you all things and bring you remembrance of all that I have said to you. This spirit of truth is going to bring truth to your minds. But more than that, he's going to remind you of what Christ said. So again, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So we have, we have the New Testament because the spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, in, in, in dwelt these individuals and illuminated their minds. So we have this infallible word that we get to study each and every Sunday that we, and, and every time we open this, this text. But not only that, he does that to you in your mind in your life, brings you remembrance, brings you knowledge, is there to teach you, Lord, what am I to do? I mean, we, we can see in James, it goes, when, when, if you need wisdom, ask for wisdom, and the Lord's going to give you wisdom. What does that look like? That's the Spirit offering you wisdom in His power here, offering you the teachings of Christ and bringing to mind the, the things of God. This is why when we have the Spirit, we can be renewed in our faith, our minds can be renewed in the truth of who Christ is. Our hearts can be opened to the understanding of, of just the, 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 the hope that we have. And we get to sit there and go, this is the truth of Christ that the Lord wants to make sure that you never forget. Imagine that. He has given you somebody to make sure that you never forget this. I don't know about you, but I got notes of stuff on my phone. Because now that everyone makes me change my passwords every 37 seconds, I have to constantly, I just have a note of like, here's a password that I changed that to because I ran out of iterations from all of my standard passwords. And I have to go, if I, if I lose that note, I'm sunk. Probably not going to pay the bills for a while until I figure out a way to change it. Imagine that the Lord has given you the Holy Spirit to make sure that you never forget the truths of Christ. So last as we this up roll what does the spirit specifically bring this is verse 27 this is the highlight of this section some just because of its clarity and just what it means what's the role of the spirit well the spirit brings peace peace I leave with you and peace I give to you not as this world gives, do I give it to you. 
No, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When we don't have peace, we, we will do almost anything to find it. That's the most gut-wrenching moments in our life when we're like, what, what's going on? I just need to be able to rest, right? Like you can tell when you don't have peace because you stay up all night, because your mind won't shut off, because you do things that are that are, they're so like you know counter to who you normally are. You just like your 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 body is so affected by the anxiety for that vulnerability and fear where we started, what we've talked about at, at the beginning, and what do we long for? I just want peace. God knows best. He knows that because He made you. And I'm sorry, he didn't make us as heads on sticks. He also made us to be beings with emotions. And he knew that as much as we needed to know, we also needed to feel. And peace is an action of feeling. Peace is an action for us to sit and rest and know that God is in control. And again, can I just quote what I said at the beginning, that separation does not equal rejection. And that confusion does not mean that God is not in control. It speaks to peace. Peace I will leave with you and peace I will give to you. Now, where does that come from? That comes from the teaching that the Holy Spirit does. That comes from the position that he is inside of us. That even in the midst of the storms of life, because isn't this world broken and crazy and ugh, I just wish that I would know how it ends. I do know how it ends, but I wish how my life specifically would end at times. But it's that, that even in the midst of that craziness, we go, but I have Holy Spirit inside of me, and I have the peace of Christ. That's what's mind-blowing about the kingdom of God. That's, what's, that's what this world, the kingdom of man, this darkness that we live in, doesn't understand about the kingdom of God. Because our peace is not contingent on trusting that we've done enough. But their kingdom is. They're going to ask you questions, have you tried every angle? Have you had every conversation? Have you done this or that? Try harder. It goes back to you haven't done enough to gain peace. But our peace isn't contingent upon us doing enough. Our peace is not created through our planning and our scheming, right? So often when you sit down, let's say, with a financial planner, the reason for that is because you're hoping for peace in the future. And they start asking you questions like, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? When do you want to retire? What does your life want to look like? And then they're going to give you these steps. Well, you got to do this, and you got to save so much, and you got to add this thing, you got to add these accounts, you got to add these insurance, you got to have all of that stuff. All of that is our scheming to try to create that peace. I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I'm just saying if you're placing your hope in it, it's wrong. But our peace is not found in the hope of this world. Our peace is found in God and in the Spirit. Turn to, to uh, Jeremiah 6, if you will. I'm going to read a couple of verses there. Jeremiah is an interesting book because Jeremiah is known as a weeping prophet. He's writing from Jerusalem. And he's writing this, he's writing the, the book of Jeremiah and then Lamentations follows after. Because the book of Jeremiah is a warning to the nation of Judah, Israel. You've taken your eyes off of God. You're starting to live like the world is calling you to live. You're trusting in the works of your own hands. You're trusting in your chariots and your horses and your military and your walls and your money and your wealth and your goodness. And you're trusting in all of this other stuff. And God is sending somebody to judge you, 
Because here's what God does. The moment that we start trusting in something of, aha, I found the cheat code to make sure that I can have safety in this life. What does God do? He graciously takes that from you. I say graciously. It, it hurts. It does. But he graciously takes that from you so that we can begin to trust and go, that's right. I can't trust in myself. I can only trust in God. Well, that's what God was doing with Jeremiah and with Israel. He was allowing the Assyrians to come in and sweep down as they were doing all of these other nations and just lay waste to the nation of Judah. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 6. This is the, the um, impending danger for Jerusalem. So if he's in Jerusalem, he says this in 15. This is how he's describing the sins of Israel. He says, they were ashamed when they, were they ashamed when they committed abominations, sins? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not even know that they should blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them, and they shall be overthrown, thus says the Lord. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. So what Jeremiah is doing, again, in this one small verse, is essentially saying, look to God, look to his word, look to his commandments, and follow that. And that is where you will find rest. That is where you will find peace. That is where you will be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and say, you know what? The world is crazy around me, but the most important person that I need a relationship with, I have, and that is God. What did they do? But they said, we will not walk in it. Come back to John 14. This is what these verses are pointing to. These disciples are sitting there saying, if you depart, what's going to happen? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you everything that you need. The helper, the advocate, the counselor, that homemaker that's going to come in and create order out of chaos. So that you can walk through this life as a light pushing back the darkness. I don't know if you have a troubled heart today. I don't know how this hits you. I don't know if you're feeling that anxiety of what's happening, Lord. The way that I thought life was going to work out is not working out. There's scariness standing in front of me. There's confusion. Does that mean that you've lost control? There's separation from my dreams. Does that mean that you've rejected me? But what these verses point to is that peace and rest is simply found by walking in the paths of righteousness and trusting in the person who indwells you. And that is the Holy Spirit. And so I will leave you with what I started with. The peace that we have is that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Have full assurance that he will never leave us and forsake us. We turn our attention towards communion today. This table just proclaims that from the rooftop. He did not leave us in our brokenness. He did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us a fighting for righteousness from our own hands. He came and, and gave us the thing that we de so desperately needed and we couldn't do, and that was his perfect life and his satisfactory death. If you're here today and you believe in Christ, we would welcome you to take this table with us as we 
renew our minds in that reality, that we are good before God, not because of our hands, but because of faith. But I would ask, if, if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, that you let these elements pass you by, not because we want to um, you know, exclude you necessarily, but because we don't want to confuse you. Because we don't want you to think, I'm taking these elements to fill myself up. I'm taking these elements so that I can be good before God. That's not what we're doing. No, we take these elements so that we can know where our hope comes from. And that is from Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. We can take the table together. Lord, thank you for your finished work on the cross. Thank you that you did not listen to our pleas and cries for help and to stay. Thank you that you allowed us even in the midst of the confusion and the brokenness of this world, thank you that, you that you allowed us to know your divine plan of redemption. Thank you that you proclaim to us that we have a helper. Lord, I just want to speak spe- specifically to those people that are struggling today. Life's, this world is a broken world. And it is broken in so many realities. And, and no part of that, no no part, no part of the world is safe from that brokenness. Lord, bring us peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that is not found because we've figured out some path forward on our own scheming devices, but a peace that is from you. Lord, thank you that we can proclaim that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort us with those realities today. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.